Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking about leaky gut. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, episode number 97. Today, we are talking about leaky gut. And no, we're not talking about something leaking out of your butt. (laughs) We are talking about the leaky gut, which is kind of a buzzword. It's kind of a, a popular way of talking about intestinal permeability. The trendy way, the trendy word. So I guess the way that, Nicole, I will refer to leaky gut in this episode, I think it's definitely a hot topic. So I think it's great for us to do a podcast on it. Yep. Agreed. And I think that leaky gut is kind of referring it to it in terms of like extremes, right? So essentially what leaky gut is, is it's a chronic hyperpermeability of the intestinal wall that allows certain particles entry Mm -hmm. that don't normally get entry into your circulatory system. So essentially what we're looking at is you have this barrier in your intestines. And if you, if you kind of look at it, your intestines, as uh, we look like when you look at it in diagrams, it's like little squares, right? And those are each individual um, uh, cell Mm -hmm. of the lining of the intestines. Now, We've got a couple of things going on in the gut to just kind of put this into context and talk about how the gut works is you've got uh, two layers of, uh, of this kind of mucus membrane, this what's called mucosa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that top layer, you've got where the bacteria sits. And then you've got like two layers of kind of two defensive layers, right? So that things don't have direct contact or the bacteria doesn't have direct contact with the lining of your intestines. And now in between your cells in your intestines, you have kind of these little spaces and you've got these tight junctions and these tight junctions are permeable and they allow small particles entry, like nutrients, vitamins, minerals, things like that. And the good stuff, the good stuff, right? Carbohydrates, glucose gets kind of uh, uh, permeated through that wall. And then you've got other things that are larger particles that really shouldn't get into that lining and enter into circulation. But what happens is in certain cases, you have what's called leaky gut, or in majority of the research, it's uh, intestinal hyperpermeability, where you just have, it becomes too permeable. And the the barrier becomes no longer selectively permeable. It, It just starts letting things in. And so essentially that is leaky gut in a nutshell. The barrier becomes less selective and instead becomes hyperpermeable. Uh, It allows particles like endotoxins, which are basically remnants from uh, uh, gram negative bacteria, undigested food particles, uh, certain larger sugar molecules. In the sugar, I'm going to get back to talking about the sugar. That's actually one of the ways that we test for leaky gut. It's actually the major way that we test for leaky gut. There are two main tests that we use for it. And one of them is lactulose mannitol ratio and also uh, testing lactulose and mannitol separately. And then also looking at serum zonulin concentration. So 
the, the first test that I'll talk about for intestinal permeability is lactulose mannitol separately and as a ratio. And it's basically what's known as a dual sugar probe. And it measures the amount of lactulose absorbed in comparison to mannitol. So essentially what you do is you have these two sugar molecules. One of them is very large, which is lactulose. And the other one is very small, which is mannitol. You excrete it in your urine. And if you have a high amount of lactulose, you right. know that you have increased intestinal permeability because mm -hmm. lactulose under normal circumstances is going to be too large to be able to permeate through that lining. So those two things are going to be measured as a ratio. You're going to say, okay, well, how much lactulose to mannitol do I have? And then also how much lactulose do I have and how much mannitol? Mannitol is going to be easily absorbed and you're going to excrete it all in your urine. Now, another commonly used test is looking at serum and fecal zonulin. Although in the studies that I've seen, I haven't seen many changes to fecal zonulin. And Nicole, you and I just discussed this offline mm -hmm. about uh, whether or not they test. And you did a GI map, right? Yeah, this is oh, not tested in a GI not, map. Not normally, but we looked it up and it can be added to the GI test. I, yeah. I don't know how valid it'll be. I think that it's a better way to test if you're testing serum zonulin. Zonulin is a biomarker used to measure modulation of tight junctions. So zonulin is something that actually modulates the tight junctions in between the cells mm -hmm. and causes them to become more permeable. So the more zonulin you have, that's a sign that you have more permeability because zonulin is one of the things that actually modulates the permeability in and of itself. So zonulin is something that we find that is increased in response to a stressor like inflammation, gut dysbiosis, changes in mucosal composition, and certain uh, dietary patterns. Mm -hmm. And this is what I want to get into today. I really want to talk about leaky gut, intestinal hyperpermeability from a uh, not as much a clinical standpoint. Uh, but more so a nutritional standpoint and what we know and what we don't know. I think that leaky gut is a hot topic. It's very buzzy. And I do think that it is one of those topics that has the potential to have a lot of claims out there. Mm -hmm. And then when you dive into the research, you're like, I, I don't know where, where people are getting all this information uh, or where they're, they're drawing these conclusions from. And I do think that there are certain areas of this topic where I can look at some research and say, okay, well, I see kind of an inkling of that, but we can't really conclusively say those things yet. So I guess really the purpose of this episode today is to educate you guys on what leaky gut is, what intestinal hyperpermeability is, and what are some of the things that affect your gut and mm -hmm. how that really affects your body. All right. So the first thing I'm going to say is symptoms. Are there symptoms? This is one of the questions that I put down here. Are there symptoms? And there's an easy answer to this. I will say no, there aren't really directly symptoms of leaky gut. And Nicole, again, you and I talked about this offline. Mm -hmm. There could be potentially symptoms of leaky gut, but the problem with that is like if you have indigestion or you have fatigue, fatigue or if you have even some skin issues, right? Mm -hmm. We, you and I have talked about skin issues and how some of them start in the gut because they yeah. cause this inflammatory cascade of things to happen. But a lot of those things can also be associated with other things. So it's really hard to say based on certain symptoms, like if Nicole, if you were my client and you were sitting right. in front of me, 
I'm not going to sit here and have a list of symptoms and say, ah, oh, I got it. You have uh-huh. leaky gut, right? Leaky gut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it is something that you'd probably need to do. I think the lactulose mannitol test is going to be mm-hmm. the most effective tool. And again, just like any other type of testing, it's not perfect in nature, uh, mm-hmm. but it's the best we have right now. And so, it's a collective. It's collective. These types of I just want to go back to the symptoms that you're talking about, because if you look up leaky gut, you will see there will be a list of symptoms. But what you're saying is that the symptoms can be correlated to like a thousand other things that could be going on. So you can't directly say that fatigue and bloating and distension of the belly or or whatever these list of symptoms are, are, are solely happening because you have leaky gut. And leaky gut is something that is accumulative. It's chronic. It's over time. So, you know, this is something that is going to be over years of mistreating your system or your dietary needs or lack of exercise or too much exercise or all the things that can happen around stressing your body and your immune system. This isn't something that you just one day wake up, you know, you don't wake up one day and go, I have these symptoms. So it's got to be leaky gut. You have to most physicians or functional medicine doctors will go through a full history of what you've been doing, eating, everything, sleeping, stress, um, along with the tests, because like you said, they're not spot on in terms of accuracy. They're just going to collect a bunch of data. And even then, when they collect all the data and all this information, it's still hard to quote unquote pinpoint that this is exactly what it is. But if they rule out everything else, then, you know, it does tend to lean more towards this being an issue. And that's why when you talk about leaky gut, here are the supplements to take leaky gut and all these like trendy um, programs and 12 week healing your gut and all this type of stuff that is out there. And it's pretty strong right now in terms of selling you stuff. You have to be really careful and make sure you're getting all the information around your individual body and whether or not this is really something that's happening or there's other aspects of your health and wellness and lifestyle that needs to be addressed. Well, from the standpoint that we're going to talk about, it's it's all going to be lifestyle, right? Yeah. Um, what I'll say is this. When it comes to leaky gut and what causes leaky gut, historically, many studies have focused on intestinal permeability as a symptom of a disease rather than a cause or contributing factor. And now we're starting to look at the research in the more recent years, focusing on understanding the relationship between diet, the microbiome, and intestinal permeability, which can exacerbate certain disease states. So for example, what I mean by that is leaky gut has implications in inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and colitis, IBS, which Nicole, you and I know that that's kind of like a blanket we don't really know what's wrong with you, but if you're diagnosed with IBS, you may have some intestinal hyperpermeability. Celiac, when you consume gluten, uh, that's going to increase intestinal permeability mm-hmm. uh, or even gluten sensitivity. That's going to increase hyperpermeability. Uh, and then liver disease has some implications and the, the liver disease stuff is kind of cool. And I, and I, I do want to talk about that a little bit because there's some uh, cool research on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and disease progression and kind of seeing changes in uh, numbers like treating the liver, but then that also treats the leaky gut. And then it's the, the thought is that there's an implication with leaky gut in your, your progression of liver disease mm-hmm. uh, and then di- diabetes and then certain autoimmune conditions. Now, 
when it comes to autoimmune conditions, a lot of autoimmune conditions are worsened by the gut, which it's interesting, Nicole, I, I had spoken to somebody uh, this week who was like, yeah, I have, uh, I have, I got diagnosed with celiac. He got diagnosed with Hashimoto mm-hmm. and then he got diagnosed with celiac. Yeah. So which came first? I think the celiac exacerbated the Hashimoto. And if you yeah. calm down the, so now if you cut out gluten. Yeah. You calm down the, the exact. And then you're not going to have, they're both autoimmune, right? Yeah. They're two autoimmune conditions, which but two is going to be a double whammy. Well, one of them is going to worsen the other one. Right. right? Exactly. And it's going to yes. be the celiac that's going to worsen the thyroid. It's not going right. to be the reverse. Like if no. you, if you can, if you mitigate the thyroid, it's not going to fix the celiac, but if right. you fix the celiac the yeah. or, and, and you stop eating gluten, then that's going to help with the uh, Hashimoto thyroiditis. So that's where it's kind of implicated. And uh, like I said, and, and this is what I wanted to get into, Nicole, with the autoimmune conditions is that a lot of autoimmune conditions are exacerbated by gut issues. So if you can solve the intestinal permeability piece, mm-hmm then you have this whole cascade of things that isn't going to happen, right? So if you are living the lifestyle that you need to, to prevent leaky gut or increased hyperpermeability, uh, then you're not going to have this immune response mm-hmm. and these inflammatory responses right. that are going to trickle down into exacerbating autoimmunity. And I think this is probably where a lot of the um, lectin stuff for some people come, come in because, you know, the claims on lectins is are lectins cause leaky gut and then leaky gut causes autoimmunity. I, I do think that there's some truth to that. I just don't think that there's enough evidence on lectins to conclusively say like, you know, nobody should eat them. What we do know is that there are a certain percentage of the population that are affected by lectins and they already have autoimmunity and that's worsened. But having leaky gut or having increased intestinal permeability is not going to cause autoimmunity unless you already have an autoimmunity or you're prone to have that. So let's get into where let's dive into a little bit of the research here on some nutritional implications for leaky gut. Uh, some of the things that we some maybe some claims, some of the things that we know, some of the things that we don't know. The first thing I want to talk about is Nicole, which I didn't put on this outline. I forgot to, but let's talk about exercise. So exercise kind of cues you into some level of intestinal permeability is normal Mm -hmm. because when you do high intensity exercise, it increases permeability of the gut lining. Mm -hmm. Now, when the higher the intensity, the more permeability you're going to see, And that kind of cues you into, okay, well, what is too much and what is too much stress? Like, so for example, the people that over-exercise and over-train, if you're chronically over-stimulating, you're going to have intestinal (laughs) permeability. That is a chronic thing. I think the big thing that you're trying to say is there has to be balance. Like anything else, we're going to talk about the types of foods that need to be balanced so that the gut stays flexible in terms of its permeability. It's the same thing with exercise. If there's too much stress on the system, it can wreak havoc on your gut. Right. And the next thing I want to talk about, Nicole, is probiotics. I think probiotics are a big thing. Should I take probiotics is a common question that I I get. And the answer I'm going to say is it's kind of I don't I so me personally, I don't recommend probiotics just because based on the research and based on what I've seen, I don't see a cause for taking probiotics. I see more of a cause for prebiotics 
then I do probiotics. And okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. So it's the research is kind of inconclusive when it comes to probiotics. So it does show an effect on those dual sugar probes that lactulose mannitol. However, it doesn't show that probiotics affect circulating endotoxins in human trials. Probiotics are a tough one for me because they're very individualized and they're transient. And what I mean by that is genetically speaking, you have a bacterial composition that was given to you by basically your mother from birth. And the probiotics that you take may, a, may not be the, the bacterial composition of, of you as an individual. So yeah. it's very individualized. And it's really hard to say, here, take this probiotic because this, there are, are there certain strains of bacteria that we know do X, Y, and Z? Yeah, sure. But what the research also shows on probiotics is what we think happens. And this was kind of the conversation that we had with Dr. Campbell when yeah. we talked about the effects of uh, exercise, exercise on the gut microbiome Yeah, is what we think is that it's not going to be enough just to take one strain or even a handful of strains mm -hmm. because you have a colony and you have a community right. of bacteria that work in symbiosis, right? They work together to create this effect. So yeah. by you taking a probiotic supplement with just a handful of different strains, it might not be beneficial for you. It's hard. If it's hard to tell what strand you need, then it's very hard to say that the what you're taking actually is helping. Like, does it really do anything or is it a temporary feel good moment because it feels good for a little bit and then your body adjusts to it or you know, adapts to it. Now this is the new colony's way of living and everything's fine. My thing with probiotics too, is I just don't think people think that you need to take stuff like that. And then you take it forever. Like if it makes you feel better, then this is what I should take forever. And I am not a fan of anything that you need to take. Well, then here's the, well, then here's the thing, because those bacterial strains are, are transient anyway, because if they don't live there to begin with, they're yeah, not just going to grow there, stay, yeah. colonize and stay there. Right. They're going to be in. And then once you stop taking the supplement, they're going to be exactly. out. So you may get a benefit from them. You may not. Uh, you know, I remember years ago reading about uh, use of probiotics in hospitals and they use them, but there's still no conclusive research to back them up. So, you know, that's kind of my stance on probiotics. I don't think you need them. I think the focus should be more on prebiotic fiber. And the yeah. reason why I say that is because when it comes to intestinal permeability, or just intestinal health in general. In general. Mm -hmm. Fiber is the number one thing that we have. The mo I don't want to say we have loads and loads of research because we don't have loads and loads of research on leaky gut to begin with, but mm -hmm. we have the biggest body of research when it comes to intestinal permeability and fiber. Mm -hmm. This goes back to what we have talked about on many other episodes is the our basic foundational nutrition strategies. When it comes to fiber, and we've, we've, I think we did a, a topic where we talked about fiber, but I'm going to dive into this mm -hmm. again. Dietary fibers are divided into two subgroups, insoluble and soluble fibers. Insoluble fibers include cellulose, lignans, and hemicelluloses. Those aren't poor. Those are poorly fermented by the, by the gut microbiome. Those kind of just help to push bulk your stool, through. push things through. Yeah. Soluble fibers, pectins, gums, fructans, and inulin. I'm going to get into inulin specifically. Psyllium, beta-glucans, also some hemi hemicelluloses. Soluble fibers are the fibers that feed the bacteria in your colon, right? Mm -hmm. 
And essentially what happens is the bacteria in your colon create short chain fatty acids and short chain fatty acids are healing to the gut. And I want to bring up two points and I want to bring up kind of two studies that are interesting to me here, because what we find is that there are three main short chain fatty acids that are made by the, we'll call them the good guys, the good bacteria in your colon. And that mm -hmm. is butyrate, propionate, and acetate. And now what we find is that butyrate, the majority of the butyrate that is produced by the bacteria is basically taken up by colonocytes and used for energy. And what we also find is that this short chain fatty acid butyrate increases GLP-2, which is glucagon-like peptide 2, which increases cell pro proliferation. It also incre increases certain growth factors that causes development of new healthy cells, right? So your cells in your intestines are constantly turning over. And what butyrate's role is to provide, A, provide energy to those cells, and B, help those proliferate into new vibrant cells. So you have a healthy intestinal lining. Uh, it helps to close up those tight junctions. And then what we find with the other two, and this is where it gets interesting with the, um, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. the studies on subjects with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease using fiber show significant changes in AST, ALT, and GGTP, which are all liver enzymes that basically, you know, they tell you how your liver is functioning. Yep. And if you have any liver damage, we saw improvements in all of your liver enzymes. And we also saw a 90% reduction in serum zonulin concentrations. And what I think is contributing to this is the fact that, so butyrate, we said gets kind of eaten up and taken up by your intestinal cells, the propionate and the acetate actually get used up by your muscles and your organs and specifically your liver. So what I'm thinking is that the other short chain fatty acids that go into circulation, they provide the liver with energy and then the liver can regenerate and then the liver can repair itself and, and you, better. and and then you see better, better liver function and you see um, kind of uh, a lesser disease progression in uh, fatty liver disease. So mm -hmm. uh, that is kind of an important point with that. And what I'll say about the fiber piece for intestinal permeability or for overall intestinal health. There's a study that used inulin enriched pasta. And what we find is that uh, inulin specifically, I don't know if it's better fermented by the bacteria in your colon, but it seems to have the greatest effect and you seem to get the most butyrate output, which yeah, see, is I just missed everything you said because you said pasta. <laughs> Basta. Great. So inulin, inulin is the one thing that, Hey, if you're looking for good gut health, mm -hmm. inulin specifically, uh, and that's something you find in inulin enriched pasta, which I just talked about, or you find it in garlic, you find it in, uh, asparagus, onions, soybeans, oats. Uh, and what we find is that if you compare like inulin versus beta glucans, beta glucans aren't going to have as good an effect, uh, on your gut and your gut microbiome as something like inulin. However, I mean, a overall balanced, healthy diet, beta-glucans mm -hmm. are really good for your cardiovascular system. So not to kind of push away the effects of that, but if you're looking specifically for gut health, then you're going to want foods that are rich in inulin. So fiber is one of the number one things, and this has to do with the production of short-chain fatty acids, and for your colon specifically, we're looking at butyrate. Now, there are studies that have supplementation with butyrate. And Nicole, I've kind of asked this question. I've never seen a practitioner 
recommend a butyrate supplement. Is that something you've ever seen? Uh, yes. I, well, I've heard not personally, not for me, but yes, I've yes. Okay. So it, I've, I haven't seen it and I'm like, I wonder, I wonder why, right? Because I feel like we've got practitioners like, functional, I think it depends on the back of the practitioner. <laughs> well, we've got functional practitioners that sometimes will recommend things where I'm like, I don't understand why you're doing that. Like, it's not, we don't have any, we don't have any information on that. We don't really know if it's going to help. Is it going to hurt the person? Maybe not, but we have research on butyrate and we can see changes. Right. So mm -hmm. if my, my stance is this eat fiber and feed the healthy bacteria, get, get a healthy microbiome and have mm -hmm. your body produce it for you, but you can also supplement with butyrate supplements. Yeah. I think that, that the good practitioners, if I say so, the good practitioners, well, there's very few. <laughs> well, they'll be, just tell people to clear. eat more. They'll just tell people to eat more fiber. Well, well, this is what I'm saying to you. It's what I said earlier. This goes back to the nutrition piece. Like th there's two parts to this leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Once you get to this place, it's a very different ball game, right? But if you are working to keep your gut healthy and balanced prior and you don't find yourself in this place, then that's those are you know, it's a different conversation, but once you find someone is here and does have issues, then these types of recommendations are going to be very different. And the reason why I say that is because, because this is a trendy term, I think a lot of people go, I'm not losing weight. So I must have leaky gut or I'm feeling fatigue. So I must have leaky gut. And then you find practitioners that go, yes, that's the reason why you're not losing weight. So here's some supplementation to help you with your gut to lose weight. It, it all goes back for me to well, it's the kind reason of like, why. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the, it must be my hormones. Yes, it's exactly. It's the same thing, or it must be my metabolism or I'm broken. It's like, what I, what I hope our listeners take from these types of conversations is that <laughs> I said this to someone today, if there was a quick fix, easy way to do things, Daron and I would be selling it. Trust me. <laughs> like we would already be creating a product that we would be making millions off of, but there isn't. That's why good practitioners and coaches and trainers, et cetera, are creating the long-term lifestyle change that you need to buy into because there is no quick fix. But these types of programs, gut fixes and gut healths and whatever, a lot of that is very generalized information. And if, as you listen to Jerome talk, you can hear that there's information that we know and some that we don't. And really the, the individual person and how their body genetically and how their his, what their history is and what they're doing currently versus in the past, all of those things are factors in how you would address something like a leaky gut situation. So I think it's really important to be, you know, aware of how quick you are to just create this. Like you decide you, we, Daron and I, you were talking about this offline. Is this really a diagnosis of something that is an actual issue or is this something that people like to kind of blame? That's one of those things from like a clinical standpoint, like, you know, you'll have practitioners, you'll have physicians, I do think to some level you'll have physicians that that are stuck in their ways and they're like, oh, yeah. this this isn't a diagnosis. It shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. The underlying disease is the diagnosis. But right. at the same time, there's also some level that I would think of, okay, well, if you're treating the disease, you're treating the symptom of potentially what's wrong because the direction the research is going in on this mm -hmm. topic is, okay, well, this is something that is either causing a disease 
or enhancing the progression of the disease. Right. Right. So to me, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. Exactly. So, Nicole, I want to get into the next thing. I want to talk about fat. High fat diets as seen in Western diets are associated with uh, lower populations of butyrate producers and high fat diets are also associated with increased lipopolysaccharide production, which can negatively impact tight junction proteins, which can open up intestinal permeability. Now, the question here is I'm curious about the composition of the high fat diet and if it matters, right? So for example, if you have a higher saturated fat diet versus a higher polyunsaturated fat diet, is that going to affect the microbial composition? My guess is going to be yes, uh, but that's still to be determined. Um, but what we do know thus far is that higher fat diets are going to affect the microbial composition in your gut. The other thing that we know is that there's a correlation with A1C levels and intestinal permeability. So if you are type two diabetic patients with diabetes, uh, we know that it, that's associated with bacteria in the dense inner layer of the mucus close to the epithelium. Uh, whereas non-obese, non-diabetic controls in comparison to diabetic uh, patients, bacteria were only present in the outer layers of the mucus. Again, what we talked about with the layers of mucus is you should yeah. have bacteria outside in that outer layer, but not in that inner layer. So there is something to be said for uh, glucose metabolism, glucose absorption. Uh, we don't know exactly why uh, the suggested effect is that it's related to the cell cellular effect of glucose on the barrier function and how glucose and fructose get absorbed. We don't really understand that mechanism fully, but what I will say is that essentially what that's saying is diets high in processed, refined carbohydrates, right? And then we also kind of get into, you know, what's the quantity that you're taking in? I think a certain level of glucose and fructose, we're not worried about. It's not like sugar is inherently bad for you, but I think in excess is where you're mm -hmm. going to see issues with intestinal permeability. The next thing we're going to talk about is gluten. And I really have nothing to say about gluten, except for what I already mentioned that gluten really only affects. And I think this is a big misconception when it comes to leaky gut and intestinal health and just health overall, is that people think that gluten is bad. Gluten is bad for people that either have celiac or some type of sensitivity to gluten. But for your everyday person, that doesn't have any type of interaction or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Issue. Any type of issue with gluten, have a piece of bread. No problem. Yeah. It's because people are using gluten-free as a weight loss strategy and it's, it has nothing to do with weight loss. Yeah. I don't know. People, I don't know how people got on this gluten craze. That's I remember, why. I remember the book, um, wheat belly. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the different types of gluten, how gluten evolved. Forget that. You you just made that. This is where his selling tool was wheat belly. So anyone that had belly fat that felt like, you know. Well, so the whole premise of I, re I remember reading the book a, a while ago. I read it. Trust and me. It, I remember that it was some doctor. I don't remember what what uh, what, what he specialized in. But his whole thing is that America's fat because of wheat. And gluten. Well, the whole reason why I bought the book was because of the title. I was like, wheat belly. I'm like, that's genius. Everybody that has a gut's going to think that gluten. If they it was a garbage, it. it was one of the worst books I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, all my clients are going to think, OK, no gluten. Yeah, and my no, belly was... poof will just disappear. No, no, no. It was it was horrible. horrible. Um, <laughs> now, what I'll say is going on to the next one. I kind of have some feelings around alcohol. And Nicole, you can chime in with your thoughts in terms of stress and stress management, because mm -hmm. 
stress affects gut permeability too, right? Mental stress. What we do know is the vagus nerve Mm -hmm. connects from your brain to your gut and you send signals back and forth, right? So if you have gut dysbiosis, that's going to affect your mental health. Mm -hmm. If you are having mental health issues or not really, I don't want to call it mental health issues, but stress is also going to affect gut dysbiosis, right? So that it's kind of like a a phone with a cord, right? That's kind of, it's, it's Mm -hmm. talking back and forth. Um, but what I will say is alcohol. So what Nicole is going to chime in with is <laughs> every once in a while, a drink is going to be okay. If you're managing stress and that stress is going to affect your gut. So depending I've already on the person, yeah. depending on the person. So I've already said your point, Nicole, so <laughs> no longer need to speak. Okay. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. alcohol piece, ethanol, which is alcohol disrupts intestinal permeability by directly damaging the cells and altering tight junction structures. And we're not just talking chronic alcohol. We're talking a single oral intake of alcohol Mm -hmm. and consumption of excessive amount of alcohol can lead to changes in rectal mucosal cells and can lead to inflammation. Now with chronic alcohol, which I think a lot of people need to have a real conversations with themselves. Listen, when it comes to alcohol, Nicole, I don't really see an upside and I, I, I've had this conversation with clients. I've had this client, this conversation with peers. I had this conversation with a buddy of mine who's a physician, and he kind of sees eye to eye with me on this, that I don't see an upside to alcohol. I think that we've culturally accepted alcohol as a society. We've accepted, hey, we can use this drug. And, you know, if we feel like shit about our jobs and, you know, whatever, we feel shit like shit about our lives, I, I can drink every night. And we've justified it by saying, a glass of red wine is good for your heart every night. And <laughs> my thoughts on that are, I think not, because if you know anything about al- alcohol metabolism and its effect on gut microbial composition, uh, uh, intestinal permeability, your nervous system, your brain, like it, your liver, it's toxic. It is putting a toxin into your body. I do not think it's healthy. Endotoxins need a molecular mass greater than or equal to 1900 to maintain biological activity, right? So you, you're not getting endotoxins through your system uh, unless you are getting particles uh, with a molecular mass greater than 1900. Now, chronic alcohol use is shown to allow particles with a molecular mass of 10,000, right? So essentially what you're looking at is exponential hyperpermeability, where you're letting in large, very large particles, very large endotoxins and endotoxins are things that will wreak havoc on your system. So Mm -hmm. this is something that I, I honestly, I just feel like we don't really need alcohol. I don't think that it, like if you're having gut issues in any way, shape or form, I think one of the first things you should do is cut out alcohol. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with you that if you have gut issues, alcohol is definitely going to be really stressful on your body. Um, so I agree with you on that part. I think for me, the, the flexibility part is it really depends on the person and where you're at and how you're using alcohol. I'm, I'm more of a stance of, I don't think alcohol's yet less necessarily good or bad. It really depends on how you're using it. If you're someone that is coming home every night and having a glass of wine to relax, then that might, we might need to look at the lifestyle that you need to fix. Why do you need to relax? so much with a glass of wine every single night. But if you're going out on a Saturday night with your girlfriends and you're not a big drinker and you're going to go and enjoy some time and re- and it is a type of relax that is a one time here or there thing, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think sometimes people 
feel better when they are relaxed from having, and it's probably more layered than the alcohol. They're out with their friends, they're, they're social, they're having a drink. Like there's more to it than just the alcohol. All right, well, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Because we're kind of on a sidetrack. We're getting off track. But I know, but I could the go last on and thing, on. Here's the thing. The last thing I want to talk about is glutamine because glutamine I've seen mm-hmm. proposed mm-hmm. as something that uh, helps with intestinal permeability and something that helps with just overall GI health. Now, yeah. it's, it is true that glutamine mechanistically does help with the gut. Glutamine enhances intestinal epithelial pr- proliferation, creating new cells. Um, it's a source of ATP or energy for cells. It's a substrate for, uh, metabolic pathways to produce nucleotides, um, glutathione, things like that. Right. So uh, glutamine has its place. The issue I have with recommending glutamine is from the research that we see, and we see this Nicole in exercise research too. Mm-hmm. Glutamine is a conditionally essential amino acid. So there's a study, for example, on malnourished children that, uh, are that don't have enough glutamine, right? They're malnourished and they don't, there's, there's not enough glutamine in their system. And then when you give them a glutamine enriched formula versus a non-enriched formula, you find, uh, changes in intestinal permeability in the group that has glutamine, but that's because they didn't have glutamine in their system. And what I think when it comes to glutamine as a supplement overall, even for exercise, which is something that we always talk about Mm -hmm. is because it's conditionally essential. We have to look at what those conditions are. Right. Malnutrition is going to be a condition where you may want to supplement with glutamine. Uh, if you get in a car accident and you have some type of muscular trauma and you have a big depletion in glutamine, this is where you're going to want to supplement with glutamine in order to recover because you've used up your glutamine stores. But under normal circumstances, you're a regular everyday person that just eats normal diet. I don't think that they need to supplement with glutamine and I don't think they're going to get a benefit. Are there certain populations that will benefit in terms of intestinal permeability or even exercise from supplementing with glutamine? Yes. But for most people, I don't think they need it. I think it's a waste of money. And that's how I feel about that. Cool. Uh, And then that, I mean, that's pretty much it in terms of the, the research on different nutrient statuses or dietary strategies on uh, leaky gut or intestinal permeability. So just to kind of recap what we talked about, probiotics are very individualized. They're transient. They're not going to stay in your system. If you take them, uh, your body has its own microbial composition. Uh, I think you'd better benefit from feeding the bacteria that already exists because we have uh, a decent amount of research, a decent body of research on fiber, specifically inulin, aiding with the microbial composition and giving you more favorable bacteria that's going to work for you to heal the gut. Butyrate supplementation might also be something that you may want to consider for leaky gut because butyrate is the primary uh, fatty acid that's made by that beneficial bacteria. Uh, High fat diets, we don't know again, which type of high fat diet, but high fat diets are associated with increased permeability. Uh, high sugar diets or high refined foods, refined carbohydrates, processed foods. That's also going to have an impact on intestinal permeability, uh, gluten only in certain populations. I think alcohol sucks and nobody should drink it. (laughs) And, uh, glutamine is going to be conditionally essential. I don't really think you need it to treat your leaky gut. If you have leaky gut, because I don't think that you're going to be depleted in glutamine. So it's not going to be warranted. And leaky gut is something that is popular 
And I don't think everybody should walk around and think, oh, my God, I think I have leaky gut. But I do think that it does have some future implications for people that need to be looked at. We need to dive further into the research. Uh, There are some implications with leaky gut and some associations with leaky gut and type 2 diabetes, obesity, increased BMI, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, autoimmune issues. Uh, There are some things that I am excited to see in the research in the future to see if there are stronger connections with intestinal permeability, immune function, autoimmunity, and just overall inflammatory conditions uh, where we see a lot of these disease states. And uh, just like Hippocrates said, uh, I believe it was something along the lines of all disease starts in the gut. And I don't think he was far off with the information that we're finding out today. Uh, Again, anything that has to do with the microbiome and the gut is, is lots of new, new research and it's still a baby and it's still developing. So I don't want people to kind of jump to conclusions when it comes to this stuff and just be very careful when you're finding information on the internet about topics pertaining to, I think, just the gut in general. Mm -hmm. Eat real food. And eat real food. I mean, essentially, that's the message, right? That's what it comes down to. Don't have a ton of uh, refined processed foods. Get your vegetables in, get your whole grains in, get your fiber in, uh, eat adequate protein and focus on your stress. I think stress is something that is often overlooked when it comes to gut health. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if you need to meditate or uh, do some things that you love to reduce your stress, then I think that is important in uh, just overall health and wellness, but also in what we're talking about in terms of microbial composition, because just like we talked about, uh, your psychological stress affects you physiologically and affects your microbiome. And with that being said, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.